Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Juneteenth is not a new holiday in the U.S. It has been celebrated by many black Americans and particularly black Texans for generations. But now that it has become a federally recognized and potentially state recognized holiday, many local Michiganders are using the time to reflect on slavery, abolition, and to spend time with loved ones. On this pre-recorded episode of Detroit Today, we'll talk with a range of suburban and Detroit celebrators of the holiday to hear about what they make of Juneteenth. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. Juneteenth is not a new holiday in the U.S. The day has been celebrated by many Black Americans and particularly by Black Texans for generations. Originally, the day was meant to give people space to remember enslaved ancestors, celebrate the abolition of slavery, and spend time with friends and family. But while it's not new, in recent years, the holiday became federally recognized. In 2021, President Joe Biden made Juneteenth a federal holiday, and on Friday, the Michigan legislature was working on doing the same thing in our state. In today's context, Juneteenth, the portmanteau of June and 19th, inspires a lot of different ideas in people's imaginations depending on who you are. Some are excited to celebrate racial progress, while others are simply reminded of how much further we have to go when considering things like mass incarceration, poor health outcomes, and the racial wealth gap that disproportionately disadvantages African Americans in our country. And still, others think of all of these things together. What does Juneteenth mean for us in America? How are Michiganders and Detroiters celebrating the now federally recognized day? And what would this country have to do to create a place where all Americans were truly liberated and free today and in the future? Later in the program, we'll talk with a professor of Israel studies about how that country came to receive reparations from Germany after World War II. But before we get there, we want to discuss Juneteenth. And to do that, we have a number of guests to help us out. We start off now with Kevin and Kalila Wright, a husband and wife duo that started Madison Heights Citizens United, which has put on Juneteenth events in that city for the past three years. Kevin and Kalila Wright, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having us. So you're a husband and wife duo that are working on Juneteenth in celebrations as you've had this past weekend. Can you tell me, let's start with you, Kalila, what does Juneteenth mean for you? It means recognizing that black Americans... um, have contributed to history that um, our past is a part of American history. And um, it means being able to celebrate with everybody and, and hoping that the country as a whole can celebrate with us. Yeah. Yeah. And for you, Kevin, I want to give you the same opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's been a learning experience the last three years. I just learned about Juneteenth of two or three years ago. Um, I never taught, I was never taught in, in school, Oh, but it's been a learning experience. I think, um, it's a part of American history that we all should know. It's a part of American history that we're trying to bring to Madisonites in the suburbs. Um, you know, people sometimes ask why we're celebrating Juneteenth in Madisonites. Um, they, they mention, you know, we celebrate the 4th of July. And I always like to say that uh, Juneteenth doesn't compete with the 4th of July. It completes the 4th of July mm. because it's the day that all Americans became free. And that's really what we're, we're, we look to celebrate in Madisonites and beyond. Yeah. So was there a specific reason why you guys decided to start putting on events for the past three years in Madison Heights? Where did that inspiration come from? Yeah, it really it really came from the death of George Floyd, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. Um, Following um, following that tragic incident, um, I talked to my wife, who's African-American. I'm white. And I said, you know, I can't stay silent anymore. I have to I have to speak up. Uh, We have uh, four beautiful children, all teenagers now. But at the time, my stepson was 15. Pardon me? Six. It was six beautiful children <laughs> but living with us at the time. Right. And he was 15, and uh, my sons were 12 and 11 at the time. And I looked at the, those boys, and I saw them playing in the house and being brothers and equals. And I thought in, in a few years, they're not going to be equals in society, unfortunately. I said, I, I couldn't look myself in the mirror and 
um, let that let that pass after the, after, the, after the death of George Floyd. So I put a Facebook post up. I said I was going to stand out on 13 Mile in front of City Hall in Massanoids with an American flag and a sign that said George Floyd didn't need to die or didn't deserve to die. And I invited people to join in on that celebration. This was like a couple days out. And, we, and Khalil and I both expected it would be just the two of us, but it ended up being shared hundreds of times, and a couple hundred people showed up. Mm. After that, the next week, we had another celebration. We didn't want to take complete ownership, so we just made a Facebook page called Massachusetts Citizens United, and, and it encouraged people to join that Facebook page. And again, the next week, we had 400 people out there. And that was the genesis of our, our organization. It's now 51C3. And it's turned into a you know a celebration of Juneteenth as our signature event. But we've also had 25 other events in the community in the last two years. You know, that's really exciting to hear about that springing up from grassroots, from a little seed was planted and you found out maybe a little more people than you thought in the area uh, were concerned about that. And I want to bring you in on this, Kalila, because I think for some people who are listening, when they think about suburbs, they think about the history, mm-hmm. especially places like Madison Heights, they wouldn't expect there to be uh, that much uh, enjoyment or celebration or opportunities uh, per se for a Juneteenth celebration. But in you doing this and getting turnout, uh, that kind of pushes back against that narrative. What have you seen in putting on these events out in Madison Heights? Has there been support or what could you share with people about that? There's been support. We've, I mean, we've, we've had support. We've had some people that aren't support. We have sure. some people asking why, mm. you know, why in Madison Heights and, you know, um, and that's from both sides. That's from the African-American community. That's from the white community. Mm. Um, people, people, for some reason, African-Americans expect, you know what, and because of the past, right. why are you going to have it in Madison Heights? Why should, as African-Americans, why should we travel to the suburbs that have treated us in a way that we don't, that um, historically has been? Well, well, let's unpack that question. <laughs> why should African-Americans go to Madison Heights for a Juneteenth celebration? What response do you have for them? We should be embracing and not dividing ourselves. Mm. We should be embracing. We should be sh- and bringing other people in, other cultures, not just the, not just white people, the Indians, um, Arab, Arab, Arab Americans. We should all be celebrating uh, Juneteenth. And you go to the suburbs to let people know who, who we are mm. and to experience so they can experience our culture so we can experience their culture. You know, I think that's really important, right? One of the ways you break down barriers when people have more interactions with folks who don't necessarily look like them helps us maybe humanize each other a little yes, bit more, exactly. understanding the similarities we have. But there was the other portion of that uh, uh, questioning that you mentioned a little <laughs> bit earlier. I guess you get from white people also yes. uh, who are saying, why are you doing this in Madison right. Heights? So what response do you have to them? Um, why not? <laughs> why not? I'm an African American. Why? Why should I not be able to celebrate right. the holiday in June in in uh, Madison Heights? I celebrate Fourth of July. We celebrate all the holidays. Why not Juneteenth? I mean, you see, it's another holiday. It's where you live, Madison it's Heights. It's where I live. So you should be able to celebrate Juneteenth, a national right. holiday, where you live. And I understand that. And one of the things we appreciate is you bring you back in, Kevin. You saying that you have not didn't even learn about this until you found out about it just a few years ago. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience, unpacking that more about um, uh, what you've learned now so much uh, that you didn't really appreciate before having learned more about Juneteenth. Well, it was eye-opening. You know, like I said, it's a part of American history everyone should know. And it to me, it kind of was a, I'm a, I call myself a work in progress. It was something that I had never heard about. But once I learned about it, I didn't realize that the enslaved people were still being held two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And I thought, you know, a lot of people say, well, why do you celebrate Juneteenth? You're revising history. You're, But we're not really revising. We want to teach a complete history, a complete American history. So for me, it was eye-opening. And, and one of the things Khalil and I had talked about early on and, and with our group, Massachusetts Citizens United, was that it's tough sometimes for people to step outside their own box and realize that other people have had different experiences. And to me, that's been part of, of my personal journey is to, you know, I'm 60 years old. I grew up in Massonite. I have the perspective of a, of a six-year-old who grew up in Massonite. But it's been an interesting part, a journey to step away from that and know that other people experience things 
or have experienced things differently than I have. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I think about with that is since this is something that's new to you, I'm sure maybe in the community where you grew up, and that would mean it's newer to them also. And if we're talking about Madison Heights and you guys have been putting these events on for three years, we went into a little bit of the reception, but have you seen growth from people in your community after you've put on these events? We have. In fact, there are people who were detractors and who were against having a Juneteenth celebration three years ago, who now are some of our biggest supporters. They've, they've come to the celebrations, they've come to our events and seen what we're teaching and what we're preaching, and they've become believers. They, they've, they've people who have stepped away from a, a stereotype they might have thought to expect from the celebration who now embrace it. And so we have seen growth. It's been gradual, but we have seen growth. Right, right. Speaking with, again, Kevin and Kalilo Wright, a husband and wife duo that started the Madison Heights Citizens United, which has put on Juneteenth events in the city for the past three years out there in Madison Heights. And so, Kalila, you've then seen this firsthand, I guess, as well. People who are learning about it and maybe were detractors before, but right. are turning to embrace it now. What do you think it was about your celebrations or about these events that caused some of these people, these folks who were a little skeptical before or just outright hostile maybe before to change their opinion? I think it's I think it's people coming together and actually talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our first event after the George Floyd, George Floyd um, demonstration was we gathered in a pavilion and we just we invited the community and we just sat and talked about um, the differences and how 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 his death affected us, how uh, living in the community affected us, and how, you know, different uh, aspects of our cultures. And I think um, as people see what we're talking about, people come together and they start talking. Yeah. And they see it's not just... Um, it's not just a black holiday, and they come and embrace it. That's right. That's why I think it was important for us to make it a national holiday, for something for all of us to celebrate here as a community. And speaking of uh, you, Kalila, having these conversations with folks, are there any messages, are there any comments, are there any things that you've learned when speaking with other people who weren't so familiar that you found really effective in getting them to understand the importance of Juneteenth? I think... Um the biggest thing is just to is just to talk to people. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just to talk and start a conversation. Right. How about for you, Kevin? I I think we framed it as an American holiday, yeah. and I think people have responded to that. And, I, and may I just uh, add something that Khalil said about talking with people and changing people's perceptions? We have a good friend, and he says it's hard to hate up close. Once you get to talk to people, once you get to know people, once you sit with them and talk, it's it's definitely harder to have. It, it melts those those preconceptions yeah. away. Yeah. And one way, I guess, to melt them is also celebrations. Uh, what do you guys do? What do you like to do for these Juneteenth celebrations? Well, we have a big one. We, have, we had a big one in Madison Heights. And yeah. we have, um, for the first year, we're having an African-American food truck rally where we're going to have nine food trucks. Mm-hmm. We've had food trucks in the past, but not as many. Uh, we have live music. Four, we had four great bands play. We have a petting zoo. We have um, a, a bounce house. Mm, wow. Uh, climbing tower, courtesy of Oakland County. Uh, so it's it's going to be a big event. We have uh, more than fifty vendors that are going to be out there. Eighty yeah. percent of them are African American owned. Um, so I think it's it's just a big celebration. It's, you know, we like to say that Juneteenth is a big holiday and it deserves a big celebration. That's what we're, what's what we did in Madison Heights. And one of the things that we appreciate about this is, again, having more local communities be able to celebrate this, bringing Juneteenth to areas that might not celebrate it as much. And I'm sure there are people who are listening right now who may be getting inspired by this and thinking about bringing it to their communities. So, Kalila, do you have any recommendations for folks who are listening on how they can start a celebration like this in their areas? I'd say just... Um Try to meet with people and try to try to get a team together to start putting it on. Even if it's even if it's something small, just mm-hmm. um, a discussion or just um, uh, gathering together and, and just just getting together to celebrate. Right. Anything to supplement there, Kevin? I would say, and I don't want to be negative, but I'd say ex- expect pushback at the beginning, right. but push through it. Um, we did through ours, and now we have a, a community that has embraced the celebration. So I would say just push through, but keep focused in what you believe in and push through. 
All right. No, I mean, that is the important, right? Anything that is really important for us, it is. Sometimes there might be some pushback, but it's very important for us to uh, be working on things like that. And one of the things that we think about on this day, liberation and freedom, a lot of folks are thinking about what does that really look like for African-Americans, as even though we've gone through Juneteenth, there's still a lot of struggles out there. Kalila, I see the response. I can understand it. Maybe someone might say, what are you talking about? Everything fine now. They don't understand the perspective. Uh, for folks who maybe don't quite understand uh, the perspective, for you, what does freedom look like, true freedom for us? Um, I think true freedom is being able to go somewhere and not think about the color of my skin. Yeah. Um, not be aware when you walk into a room that, you know what, if it's a room full of white people, how am I going to be treated? Do I need to be on guard to figure out... Um, who actually I'm dealing with and what their intentions are and who they are. Um, I think that that's true freedom. Yeah, that's a, a perspective that I think a lot of people don't understand, especially when you're African-American, when you've been living out here, especially in a lot of places where you walk to the acute awareness of uh, who you are and how you fit into the surrounding areas. Not an experience everybody has. I mean, Kevin, I don't know if that's something <laughs> that you have a similar experience with, but uh, you've had conversations with Kalila. How have you seen that uh, come I, up in your life? I have not had that experience, and we've talked about this before. And I tell people the fact that I'm married to an African-American woman does not give me any insight on what it's, to be, what it's like to be black right. in America. It, it gives me none. But it gives me an opportunity to talk with my wife about things that I would never would have the opportunity to talk about and yeah. see perspectives I'd never seen. Again, I, I go back to saying stepping outside your box to know that other people have different experiences because a lot of times we've talked about issues or something that's happened we see it in a different way, and, and I think it's not, it's not a disagreement. It's just that our perspectives are different from our upbringings. Yeah, and you know, some of that, I think, is also trusting people's perspectives. I know when I have conversations like this, some people are open there to learn, listen to my perspective, even if they disagree. I get shocked sometimes by the people who will try to tell me that my experience is not actually my <laughs> experience, right? I mean, we can maybe quibble a little bit about was it this bad or not or why, but you know, normally when you have emotional reactions, there's a reason for it. And if you're talking to somebody about it and they tell you their experience, if your first response is, no, you're lying, that's not actually what you felt, I would maybe say maybe rethink about how you're taking someone in. I mean, if I'm having a conversation with you, I should trust the information that you're giving me about your experience. So I ask you about your experience, Kalila. Has you seen any change in your environment and community out there in Madison Heights since from when you began putting on these events till now? I think I've seen um, I've seen some change. I've seen um more more awareness. Mm -hmm. I've seen more people. Um, we actually have people looking forward to Juneteenth now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the difference. And I, I think it's important for people when they're talking with other people to ex to also, like you said, to accept other people's um, situation and how they feel. I've had um, I've had situations where I've had people coming up to me and telling me how I should feel as a black person. Mm. Um, and that, and that's not helping. It's yeah. not um, it's not the way to start. A, it's not the way to have a conversation. And you you need to be open and aware yeah. of where people are coming from. Right, right. I want to take the the discussion out a little bit broader in terms of uh, what you guys see out there uh, and from creating your celebrations. What's one thing that you really learned uh, now that you've created uh, Citizens United? And I'll start with you, especially Kevin, considering your background. What's something that you've learned that you didn't know before uh, since being a part of this? Program? project? Well, in a more abstract way, I've learned that people are open to learn. Mm. We've had a lot of people, like, like I said previously, who thought they were against what we were talking about, but didn't know what we were talking about. One of our models is reach the reachable. Mm -hmm. We found that there's people who say they're dead set against us, but they don't know what, we're, what our events entail. And once they come to them, they become supporters. Do you have any specific stories, either of you, when you're thinking about that, of something, of how an interaction like that happened? Because I think for many, you say reach the reachable. Some of it would be like, what does a reachable person look like, right? They could be putting up a really big facade. Maybe that is someone that you can talk to. Uh, do you have any personal stories from that? I do. And I, and I think a lot of times it's not so much out of true negative feelings toward what we're talking about 
is more of just not knowing mm-hmm. out of ignorance. And and one of the biggest stories I'll, I'll say is we have a, a resident who was dead set against the celebration year one. She was quite vocal about it um, on social media. Um, but after coming to some of our events and talking with us, she's now one of our bigger supporters. Mm. And, and she's been someone who's uh, helped us in the community. So I think... Um, and there, there's been more stories than that, but that's one in particular. Yeah. yeah. How do you get somebody like that, Kalila, <laughs> to come to the event in the first place, right? Throwing bombs on social media is real easy. <laughs> getting up and going somewhere is harder. Yeah. I think um, I think for some people, they come um, to some of the meetings just to – so they have something to go back to to uh, talk about. Right. Um, and then they come and they realize, you know, this isn't what we're about. We're, we are really out here trying to – meet with people, trying to talk with people, trying to engage people, and trying to share a story and um, understand each other and develop um, develop relationships with each other. But I think we're a ways. But we just want to continue to grow. Uh, we, we've really framed that it's, it's not just a celebration for people in Massonites. We've invited people from all over the community. Our social media ads go to the entire metro Detroit area, and we want people to come. If, they, if their city's having a celebration, we encourage them to go to their celebration. If it's on a different day, come to ours too. But if your city doesn't have a celebration, come to Madison Heights. We, we welcome you with open arms. This is a celebration for everyone. That's fantastic. I think that's a great place to end it on. So Kevin and Kalila Wright out of Madison Heights with Madison Heights Citizens United. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you. When we return, our conversation continues about events happening in the area, this time in Detroit with Yolanda Jack, the manager of community engagement for the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, as we continue our celebration of Juneteenth right here on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson as we've been discussing Juneteenth, starting out in the suburbs, but now we want to expand the conversation to include Detroit. And to help us do that, we have Yolanda Jack. She is the manager of community engagement for the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, and she's here to talk about the events going on at the Charles H. Wright Museum. Yolanda. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Almost afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here with us. Now, I know that Juneteenth, we're all going to be celebrating this. Uh, what do you got going on at the Charles H. Wright Museum? Noon will begin our event of activities for celebrating Juneteenth. Um, we will have uh, a great array of performances, storytelling, African drumming and dancing, other musicians coming. King Sophia will be here. Uh, the Ngoma Zai Amin Ra African Drum and Dance Troupe, Al Noor will be performing, a great storyteller and musician. So it'll just be a variety of presentations and performances for people to just come, enjoy, connect to the uh, history, the commemoration of freedom and the idea of the importance of that value that we have here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that in the United States, now that it is a federal holiday, the Charles H. Wright Museum, of course, has been doing things for Juneteenth historically for a while, but now we're coming on the first opportunities to celebrate it as a federally holi- uh, a federally recognized holiday. Can you tell us how Juneteenth has changed uh, since that recognition uh, for you guys or what you're seeing at the Charles H. Wright Museum? Well, for us, it really isn't that much of a change. We've been celebrating, as you said, for a while, and our celebrations have been varied and various. We've done a variety of different things in collaboration with the city of Detroit and other organizations in Detroit, but we've always tried to make certain that there is a way that we are connected to the celebration of Juneteenth. Um, And since the pandemic, it's been a little different, obviously, because we've been away um, and virtual But this year we're coming back in person and we're really excited to make certain that people recognize the fact that while the nation may be new to celebrating the significance of Juneteenth, um, being one of America's first holidays, uh, first black holiday, um, and it was one of those holidays that people claim for themselves Mm -hmm. the same way that people really wanted to make certain that they were understood as as Americans uh, claiming their own uh, citizenship at a time when at that point they weren't citizens, you know, you know, according to the 14th amendment, at least we hadn't seen that just yet. Yeah. Yeah. 
Go yeah, ahead. So we really want to just dive deep into the commemoration and exploration of freedom, what it meant then in the 1800s and how we're forwarding and, and deepening the meaning and, and the ideas of liberation today and how we can connect to ourselves through the history, through the um, creation of history and the ideas of future um, ideas of liberation and freedom in our communities and in our cities. How do we think about that? How do we work towards that? How do we build towards that? How do we maintain and celebrate what we have? These are the things that we're doing. Yeah. And so that's not so much different, but just a continuation. When you're looking at what you think about Juneteenth and what it represents and where we can move moving forward, what does freedom for all of us here in uh, the African-American community look like to you, Yolanda? Well, freedom is, is, is what it is when you feel that you have the ability to do what you want to do, how you are able to do it in the way. And no one is going to come at you for being who you are or judge you for being who you are or to make you feel belittled or second class or other than for being who you are. To me, that's a significant aspect of freedom. But it's also a self-determined thing. I'm free because I say so. Mm. And that understanding that that is a real thing, not only for Yolanda Jack, but for every person, every citizen who stakes that claim, you are free because you say so. And, and what does that mean? Where does that come from? How do you celebrate and appreciate that freedom when you don't feel though that you have opportunity to walk the streets or drive the roads or travel without some type of um, altercation or situation. So looking towards how we are able to claim that freedom and then make it be real, not only in my imagination or in my own small bubble, but everywhere I go as a person who is a citizen of these United States expects to do. When people come to the Charles H. Wright Museum, they learn things a lot of the times. I'm sure sometimes they're learning stuff they didn't even know about Juneteenth or black history generally. What are some of the questions or things that you learn or people tell you, you know what? I didn't realize this until I came through and found out about it from uh, the presentations that you guys have been putting out there. One of the things that is um, a big surprise to people, because it's a common thread that we hear repeated a lot, that the people in Galveston, Texas, did not know they had been given freedom with the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued and, and when it became ratified, people across the U.S. knew. The problem was that there was no one to enforce the freedom that would have been theirs in Texas. There was no union troops. There were no um, people to really literally defend that freedom for them. So the arrival of General Granger on June 19, 1865, was an important day because it was the day that they got their freedom backed up. This was the day that their freedom was truly enforced and made real, as opposed to, yes, yeah, the freedom in, in, in theory, um, as it had been those previous two years. So that's one very big uh, point that I think that a lot of people are surprised to hear. Oh, they did know. Yeah, people knew. Even though there wasn't Facebook, even though there wasn't um, um, Instagram and all the things that we use now, cell phones, et cetera, people got information. That information got exchanged. And black people were in the room when the Emancipation Proclamation was, was signed and, and ratified. Black people were able to talk about it across the nation. They just didn't have a way, particularly those who had been enslaved. There was no person, there was no being, there was no entity to enforce it beyond the federal government and the union troops. So that was the, the very important point. Uh, they knew they were free. They didn't have anybody to enforce it. Things are happening at the Charles H. Wright Museum. What do you have planned moving forward that people should know about for the summer? Our third Thursday event. So it's a regular occurring event. Every third Thursday we have um, music, DJ. You can come and get a drink. You can sit back and enjoy the vibes, getting ready for your new, uh, for the weekend perhaps. Um, here's some some poetry or and take in a panel. Um, that's our third Thursday program that we have monthly. In addition, next month, our our June uh, our African World Festival event will happen on the 14th, 15th, and 16th of um, the month. So African World Festival will be celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. It is amazing to realize the African World Festival is 40 years old. I remember a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we'll be celebrating, um, thinking about the past, but also the future. The um, uh, we're th We got some uh, Afrofuturistic themes going on, as well as uh, bringing in perhaps one of the uh, 
Afrofuturistic men of the day or of the time for now, uh, George Clinton will oh, be um, yeah. partying yeah. on Friday night. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? Where are you going to be yeah, at Heart Plaza on Friday night to check out that? amazing concert. It is a free concert if you are a member of the museum. And if you are not a member of the museum yet, you can become a member of the museum and your tickets for the African World Festival will be taken care of as a result of your being a member. How do people and, find uh, out more about uh, membership and what you're doing over there at the Charles H. Wright Museum? You can find out about our programs and all of the things that we're doing at the museum at theright.org. Our website, T-H-E- W-R-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G, the right dot org. You could become a member. So yeah, you have a wonderful opportunity to learn about African-American history in Detroit and Michigan and how we connect ourselves to not only the nation, but the world. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there, Yolanda, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Yolanda Jack here on Detroit Today and happy Juneteenth to you. Happy Juneteenth, Nick. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Have a great one. When we return, we will continue our celebration of Juneteenth right here on Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson on Juneteenth. And as we continue our celebration, let's think of some cities and locations around the country, including Evanston, Illinois, Amherst, Massachusetts, California, and Detroit. What do these places all have in common? One thing is that they're all pushing or have pushed for reparations for local black residents and their ancestors who faced anti-black discrimination. While unique in many ways, black Americans are not the only group to face heavy discrimination in the past. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, which was an effort led by Nazi Germany. But after the slaughter and at the end of World War II, something interesting happened. Israel received reparations from Germany for the destruction that country caused Jews around the world. How did Germany and Israel come to this agreement? And what can black Americans and their allies pushing for reparations today learn about that historical process? To talk about this, we have Ronald Zweig with us here. He is a professor of Israel studies at New York University and the author of many books, including German Reparations and the Jewish World, A History of the Claims Conference. Professor Zweig, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, this is a really interesting topic because around here, a lot of people have been talking about reparations and there's not a lot of historical analogs to really look at, except this is one of those unique opportunities. So I just kind of want to start from the beginning. How did German reparations for Israel come to be after World War II as recompense? Well, it's a complicated story. It begins uh, immediately at the end of the Second World War, where uh, Jewish survivors, people liberated from concentration camps, people who had been in hiding or people who had uh, found refuge in the Soviet Union, returned to their homes, found that they no longer had a home, ended up in refugee camps, or as they were called at the time, displaced persons camps, most of which were in the American zones of occupation uh, in Germany and Austria. That created a unique problem because America was trying to denazify Germany, that is, get rid of all of the Nazi officials uh, and get them out of government, um, change or erase the Nazi laws that had been implemented since 1933. And one of the issues they had to face was restoring Aryanized Uh, property, that is Jewish property that the Nazis had seized um, as they either um, expelled the Jews or later on deported them to the death camps. Because so many Jews had been murdered, uh, owners of property and their heirs no longer existed. There was what was called heirless property. Now, Israel didn't want to talk to Germans. This is only uh, six or seven years after the gas chambers and crematoria of Auschwitz were working, um, after the murder of the six million. 
it was extremely difficult for Israel to contemplate actually sitting down at a table and negotiating uh, with Germans. So Israel instead wrote to the occupation powers, to the American military government, to the British military government, the French occupation authorities in Germany, and to the Soviet Union occupying East Germany. Well, the Soviets never answered Israel's letter, but the Western allies did. And they said they would support Israel's claim, but they would not impose it on Germany. Israel would have to negotiate directly with Germany. Well, this was very difficult. Um, and in fact, there were riots in Israel uh, when the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, actually voted on the question, could Israel negotiate directly uh, with Western Germany? That decision was taken in January 1952. Now, how is it possible that Israel does actually negotiate? So when the Allies answered and said, um, we support you, but we're not going to do it for you, Israel realized that it would have to negotiate directly with the Germans. Now a new problem comes up. The West German government had replaced the Nazi government. Germany, Nazi Germany had unconditionally surrendered and um, non-Nazi politicians were found to create a new government and progressively from the end of the Second World War, May 1945 in Europe, until the early 1950s, until 1952 in fact, the Allies were returning to the German authorities more and more and more authority. Germany was about to become sovereign and fully independent and the occupying powers were about to go home. But during this time, Nobody in Germany had taken responsibility for the Holocaust. Nobody had said, we did this, it was terrible, we are sorry. Israel couldn't possibly sit with the Germans and negotiate until the Germans accepted responsibility for what they had done. So discreetly, behind the scenes, via go-betweens, intermediaries, the German government and the Israeli Foreign Office discussed how it would be possible to frame a statement that would enable negotiations to take place. You see, it appears that by 1952, as Germany is about to re-enter the international community, the German government, led by Chancellor Konrad Adenauer from the Christian Democratic Party, was actually keen to come to some sort of reparations agreement. They recognized that there was a massive debt to the Jewish people. They recognized that the restitution process uh, had returned real estate, but that was far from being enough. And ultimately, a statement by the German leadership was uh, negotiated, was uh, drafted and approved by all parties, whereby the Germans said that indescribable suffering had been done to the Jewish people by people speaking on behalf of Germany. The, the uh, exact language was slightly different. Um, by, by representatives of the German people. They didn't take direct responsibility. Nobody says, we did this. They were blaming the Nazis, because the Nazis had been Germans. Nevertheless, that was a partial acknowledgement of responsibility, a partial acknowledgement of guilt, and Israel felt that it had little choice but to be satisfied with that as a starting point. And Israel agreed. The various Jewish organizations, there were over 20 of them, that had been active in refugee rehabilitation, looking after the Holocaust survivors from around the world, met in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan, New York, to discuss if it was possible to negotiate with Germany and what should be asked. 
it was resolved to create an organization that would stress that all that was being talked about was material compensation. The Conference for Jewish Material Claims Against Germany was the umbrella organization that was created. It later on became known uh, uh, in brief as the Claims Conference. But it was very clear that moral amends were not being discussed, only material compensation. With that, the Claims Conference and the Israeli government joined together to negotiate with Germany. The negotiations began in March 1952. Interestingly, they were held in Holland uh, in a uh, palace of the Dutch royal family that the royal family uh, lent uh, for this purpose in a town called Wassenaar. It was isolated um, in order to protect the delegates because there was a lot of opposition in the Jewish world that uh, they should negotiate with Germany. In fact, uh, letter bombs were sent to the delegation in an attempt to disrupt them. There was an attempt to pl place a bomb in the Israeli foreign office before the delegation actually left. That bomb didn't go off. There were violent disruptions of the uh, discussion in the Knesset, as I'd said, but also of the talks in the Waldorf Astoria. It was such a painful topic, but the needs of the survivors had to be put uh, first on the agenda. And moral issues, the unpleasantness of negotiating with Germans, incidentally, some of whom had been Nazis themselves, even though they were now high officials in the West German uh, Ministry of Finance and Banking World. Um, the, the unpleasantness of dealing with these people had to be put aside and the, the talks began. Uh, in, in agreement was reached in August, um, although there had been a crisis in the negotiations, they broke up, they came back together. The Germans said, look, we recognize your claim. We just can't afford that much money. This is Germany after the war in early 1950s, before the German economic miracle, as it was called, before Germany had a strong economy. Germany's economy was still in shambles. Germans said, we, recognize, we can afford to pay two thirds of what you want. That is, uh, uh, we agree to discuss $1 billion, but you've got to recognize that West Germany is only 72% of the territory of Nazi Germany. Right. The rest is East Germany. You'll have to ask them for their share. Right. We will talk about 72%, which is $720 million. Doesn't sound very much today, but like I said, multiply it by 20, you get to a much more considerable figure. Then the Germans said, but well, we can't pay cash. We don't have any money. We don't have foreign currency. We can pay you in industrial goods. And we can do that over a 12-year period. And Israel said, that's okay. We need the industrial goods to create a modern economy. By industrial goods, the Germans provided uh, ships, power stations, railways, uh, trains, this sort of infrastructure material over a 12-year period. And the Israeli economy absorbed these goods uh, and um, Israel's economic situation improved. What about the diaspora organizations? The Germans were prepared to pay two things to the diaspora organizations. One was a small global payment, as it was called a general reparations payment, of $120 million, also paid out in industrial goods over 12 years. And the other was an indemnification agreement for individual survivors. Indemnification is personal compensation. Um, this, the Germans thought, was a limited agreement but in fact, the indemnifications paid out by the Germans over the years became much, much bigger than anything paid to Israel or the diaspora organizations. Now, the bottom line is that contrary to Jewish fears, I mean, the organizations were really frightened or concerned that Germany would not negotiate in good faith. 
uh, would break off the negotiations halfway through and say, oh, well, you see, the Jews are only interested in money, um, or that they would not come to an honest settlement. Well, the opposite was true. The Germans conducted the negotiations in good faith. The agreements were not only implemented, but they were expanded and extended Mm. uh, ever since. Uh, And that is really very significant. I think it's important also to notice that the agreements were signed finally, uh, not in Wassenaar, but in Luxembourg. Um, That's why they're called the Luxembourg Agreements. On the morning that Germany signed the first agreement that began the European Economic Community, Germany, Adenauer said he wants to settle the debt with the Jews before Germany joins the economic, uh, European economic community. And that was a symbolic gesture of, of some meaning. Uh, it would not have happened uh, without the personal contribution of, of the German chancellor. Yep. So the big question is, what is the impact of all of this? Well, I've mentioned that uh, it certainly made a huge contribution to the uh, Israeli economy. It made a huge contribution to the uh, rehabilitation of Holocaust uh, survivors. But I think there are three things we can say about it. First of all, the importance of the whole uh, reparations process, whether it's restitution or indemnification or reparations themselves, is the act of doing justice to the injured, to the survivors. There is a moral aspect to it. The Germans had to face at least the material consequences of the damages uh, that they did. At the time, the reparations agreement was not at all popular in Germany. The Germans had not internalized their responsibility for the Holocaust. They resented having to pay. But that was the generation of Germans that grew up under Hitler. Subsequent generations of Germans have a completely different attitude. Today's Germany is very different from the Germany of Hitler, certainly. It's different even of the Germany of the 1950s. Germany has come to terms with the Holocaust. It does teach its young people about the crimes of uh, their forefathers. And the reparations agreement is no longer such a controversial thing. So repairing historical wrongs uh, is a way of restoring relations. Right, which brings me to the question of what are relations like between Germany now and uh, Israel? Excellent. Mm. Surprisingly, more so than anyone would have anticipated, Israel and Germany are actually very close Um, uh, Israel accepted a German ambassador in 1965. They formed formal diplomatic relations in 1965. Germany has always been a strong defender of Israel in the international community. Ironically, Germany is the source of some of Israel's major weapon systems, submarines, for instance, um, all made in Germany. And now the reverse has happened. This week, an agreement was signed between Israel and Germany, where Israeli weapons systems will be defending Germany and Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just a matter of weapons. Uh, There are now about 30,000 Israelis who live in Berlin. The Jewish community of Berlin has been revitalized. Relations between Jews and Germans in general, not just between Israel and Germany, are um, vastly repaired. We would never have been in this situation had the reparations agreement not been negotiated and had the reparations agreement not been implemented as effectively and as honestly as it was. You know, that's that's amazing to bring up. You say how people are surprised about that. Another thing you mentioned were uh, the economy that Germany had at the time uh, they were going through the negotiations initially was not very good until they had this resurgence. Uh, so they were even able to have that economic resurgence despite all of this payment out for the reparations. Can you tell me what, if any, effect uh, this recompense and the reconciliation that they had through these reparations uh, had on their ability to juice their economy or improve their economy as they did, as effectively as Germany did? 
Uh, ironically, um, I suspect uh, historians uh, think that the actual pumping of government money into German industry in order to produce the goods for reparations to Israel was one of the things that kick-started the German economy and not just the Israeli economy. Mm. So the economic benefit was bilateral. That makes sense, actually, when you think about it. And uh, I guess before I let you go, uh, Professor Zweig, because this has been very fascinating to learn about, what can other communities pushing for reparations learn from this experience between Germany and Israel? That's a very difficult one because every situation is <laughs> That is, is true. Different. Of course, it's true. Uh, the, in in uh, Namibia, um, the, the Namibian government is negotiating with the German government for reparations for German actions uh, when Namibia was a German colony before the First World War. They're difficult negotiations, but a, but a settlement will be made. I think the important thing to think about with reparations is that they must be a tool for constructive relations. Don't think about money. Think about um, economic assistance uh, in the way that the Israeli economy was provided with infrastructure goods. Think about using reparations to build and construct. Also, think in terms of not a, a single payment, but a commitment to pay over many years. The reparations agreement between Germany and Israel was set to expire after 12 years, but the Germans extended it, not to Israel, but the indemnification to Holocaust survivors continues until this day. And a, and a settlement that should have cost, the Germans originally estimated, it would cost them four to five billion Deutschmarks as it played out over the years in German currency has ended up costing them about 120 billion Deutschmarks. Mm. So, you know, things grow, develop and change. Reparations are not a one-time hit. They should be a process that is conceived of in a constructive way, played out over years. We're going to have to end it there. But Professor Zweig, of, uh, a professor of Israel studies at New York University, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. You're very welcome. That's going to do it for this Juneteenth edition of Detroit Today. Tune in tomorrow when Stephen returns from vacation. You're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.